Welcome to Museums in Strange Places. I'm your host, Hannah Hethman, and this is a podcast for people who love museums, stories, culture, and exploring the world. In this season of the podcast, I'm visiting the Museums of Iceland to discover what stories they hold and how they reflect and shape Iceland's unique cultural identity. Today's episode is sponsored by Locatify. Usually the houses here were, were not very good, and smaller the house was, and worse, the name of the house was bigger. We called them London, Edinburgh, Paris. They were not giving up. They still had some hope. Things could be changing. To get to the Westman Islands off Iceland's south coast, you have to take a 40-minute ride on the ferry Herjolfur. This spring, I visited these rugged volcanic islands, called Vesmanaer in Icelandic, to learn about the Eyjamen, Iceland's island people. Farmers and fishermen have been living here on the Westman Islands continuously since 900 AD, despite harsh weather, virtually no fresh water sources, pirates, volcanic eruptions, and climate change. Even though it was a holiday weekend when I arrived on the island, the director of the local history museum, Sagtheimar, was kind enough to open their doors and tell me all about why the island and its people are so unique. Uh, my name is Helga Hallbergsdóttir, and uh, I'm leading this folk museum here on the Westman Islands. In this museum, we emphasize on the history of this island, not Iceland, but what has happened here on this island also trying to explain what makes this island so special that even if we have an eruption here, a pirate raid or whatever, uh, we always come back and stay on here on the island. Uh, on this wall, you have a, we have a map showing all the Westman Islands. We say the Westman Islands are 15, just only one is inhabited, Heima A, the home island this island. Our newest island is Surtse, that came out of the sea in 1963. Then we had an eruption here in 1973. And all around us are volcanoes, so we should not be too surprised if something happens here, but all the same, we get very surprised every time. <laughs> if we are telling something, we always say, before the eruption, then we mean the eruption in 1973, and after the eruption. And we also talk about what happens um, before our festival in August, and what happens after the festival, and before Christmas and after Christmas. That's the time schedule we have <laughs> on this island. <laughs> we used to be 5,200 people living here before the eruption. Now we are about 4,000 200 people living here. The main industry on this island has always been fish industry. Everything depending on the fish. Uh, of course, it has changed uh, through the years, but more or less, we still emphasize very much on the fish and the fish export. And it also gives a lot of jobs. And of course, now we have more tourists, but all the same, the fish industry is the most important thing. 
In this museum, uh, we tell a lot of stories about fishermen and how difficult the life has been being a fisherman here on the island. That also means that we are, we are asking here on the wall, is this the most dangerous profession in the world? And being a museum, we are not allowed to answer this question with yes, but you can answer it for yourself. After you have been reading all these stories here on the wall about what has happening through the years. What made it so dangerous then and now to be a fisherman off uh, Hemai? The boats were very small. This was more or less uh, everything depending on that you were able to go out fishing and get some food for yourself and your family. You did not have any weather forecast. You uh, just had to depend on your senses. So if the weather looked nice, you went out, even if it changed very rapidly. So you did not know anything about that. Also, uh, the clothes were different and the rescue things were different. You did not have rescue boats until after 1950. So it was very difficult. And also, what seems very strange in my mind now is that people in Iceland, uh, it was very common that they thought you should not learn swimming because that just makes your struggle for life last longer. Ooh. Yeah. But we started uh, teaching swimming about 1900 here in the sea, in the harbor. And uh, people were discussing, really discussing if it was worth it. Mm. And people were drowning all uh, just very short way from the coastline because they could not swim. I guess, putting in context, the water is very cold. So if you're anywhere more than really, what, 10, 15 minutes swim from the shore, then you would die no matter what. If no one knew how to swim, then you have no, no reference how it would be better if people yes. could swim. Yes, that's true. And that makes this story here, we have here on the wall, about this boat in 1984. Uh, we had a fish boat here with five young men. We went out in the evening in March 11th. It was uh, 1984, yes. And it was very dark, very cold. It was winter time. And they went out on their fishing boat from this island, boat called Hetlisei. And something happened when they came uh, after two or three hours. Probably the, the fishing equipment got stuck at the bottom. So the boat turned over. And one of the fishermen... Uh, disappeared at once and the others were swimming around. It happened all so quickly that they could not call for any help or anything or let anyone know. There was supposed to be a rescue boat, but it did not open. So they were swimming around trying to get at the bottom on the, on the bottom of the boat and the boat was sinking more and more and more. And the captain on the boat, Hjörtur, he was diving several times under the boat trying to open the rescue boat but he could not open it. So, boat sinking more and more and more, what to do? So, they decided to try to swim to the island, Heimai. This was supposed to be impossible. It's six kilometers in dark night, and they just normally dressed. In freezing, in really, really cold water. Yeah, it's in March 11th. Uh, it's Iceland, it's very cold. Yeah. They decided, oh, sitting there, okay, Everyone is going to try for himself. We are not trying to rescue each other. So four of them started swimming, calling each other's name. 
And after 50 minutes, just one was left. He was swimming to the island, and all the time he could see the uh, lighthouse here on the south coast, so he knew the direction. And he was swimming towards the uh, island and the east coast. Uh, this was just 11 years after the eruption. So the coast was very rough. The lava was very rough. So when he came to the coast, he thought, well, I'm never going to make it up here. So he swam out again and tried another way. And then he walked over the rough lava. And of course, he was barefoot. Then he came by a bath tube, the old bath tube we used to keep water for the sheep on island. And it was frozen because it was so cold. So he broke up and got some water to drink and that helped him a lot, he said. And then he walked to the first house, told them what had happened and he was brought to the hospital. So this proves it's very important to be able to swim. Sometimes everything goes wrong and sometimes you are more luck, but it, uh, we have a lot of stories here, but also because we have all the stories, we also uh, are telling here in this museum about all kinds of rescue things we have been. We have been very clever in finding, introducing new kinds of uh, things f for rescuing people. And we were also one of the first uh, to in Iceland to uh, use uh, rescue boats and things like that. So we have always tried to uh, use technology to improve things. And on this wall here, we have the names of people that have drowned fishing around Westmanair or the south coast. It's a lot of people. In other countries in Europe, you have um, big monuments about people that died in the war. But here we have a long list of people that drowned. Yeah, it's a long list. Yeah, it's a long list. This museum was um, renovated in 2011 and uh, it changed a lot and it is still changing because the museum is a living thing. So we are changing exhibitions now and then and stories and we also are doing all kinds of things here in the museum and getting people over to tell stories and things like that. But what I find very good also in this exhibition here is that we are also telling how the life of the fishermen's wives are. I hear these stories all the time about the woman, oh, well, she lost two husbands at sea and one child at sea. Well, what was she doing besides just losing her family and yes. waiting for them to come home? Yes. Well, uh, the women um, did not have much choice. Everyone was fighting for their lives and trying to survive and working, and they helped the fish. When the fish came to, to the island, they were working there, taking care of the children and everything. Losing husbands and sons to the sea was not the only tragedy facing women on Heimae. Over a period of about 150 years, from the late 1700s to the mid-1800s, babies on Heimae would die soon after they were born, and nobody knew why. By the mid-1800s, nearly three out of four newborn babies died before they were two weeks old. And of course, we did not know about bacteria or anything, so we were speculating, why? Everyone was speculating, and we belonged to Denmark at that time. And the tennis king, of course, was not very happy with it because he needed more people here to work here to bring him more fish. Fish was worth more than gold at that time. He was sending, Dennis king was sending over um, doctors now and then, but they did not really find out what, why this was. 
and people were thinking, well, is it the water? Because we don't get any water here, fresh water. We are just gathering the rainwater here on this island. Was it the birds? Had it something to do with the birds shitting all over the place? <laughs> Had it something to do with the sheep? Well, we did not know. But then we got over um, a Danish doctor to the island called Dr. Schlesner. He had been working in South America. There he got some special balsam that he uh, had seen the Indians were using it. They were using it when they had some wounds, so it was growing everything very fast if they used this balsam, so he had this with him. He also, also said, we have to change everything here on the island because everyone had been giving birth like their mother had been doing it, and grandmother, and we were all doing in the same kind of things we had been doing for hundreds of years. So he said, we, uh, we have to change something. To help change practices and find a cure, the doctor sent a young woman from the island, Solve Paulsdotter, to Denmark for training as a midwife. That was uh, not very easy because she was not allowed to go to school in, in Copenhagen to learn to be a midwife because she had not had any children herself. Oh, that's ridiculous. Yes, we say, uh. that. yeah. <laughs> but you have to remember, this is 1850, yeah. yeah. But all the same, they managed to do that, and she came back, and she and Dr. Schlesner were working together, and they built a house. It's close no, to the harbor called Landlist. Every woman gave birth was supposed to come there and give birth there. But of course, women had not done that for hundreds of years, and they were not ready to change that. Then uh, they found out that um, what is called the, uh, the... The umbilical cord, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then they found out when the good doctor put this balsam on the, this cord. cord, the children lived. So then they knew, okay, it's coming there. Whatever it is, it's coming there. And then later they found out it's a rather windy place here on Westmania. We had been drying the cloth of the children and everything on the earth, on the, on the grass. So everything in the earth went into those and then into the court here, to the bloodstream. So uh, they knew how to stop it. And in very few years, almost no one died from this. And they now uh, later we found out this was tetanus. There is a, an island in Scotland that had the same problem. And they never found out why all the children died there. And everyone was evacuated from that island. Wow, so they had to completely leave their island, whereas they found out here. Yeah. Solve was one of the first women in Iceland to receive formal midwife training, and she was the first formally trained midwife on the Westman Islands. She played an important role in changing the practices that had been contributing to the tetanus, something that must have been difficult for her as the daughter of a midwife herself. Solve would have grown up seeing her mother caring for pregnant women on the island, using traditions that had been passed down from one midwife to another for hundreds of years. It takes courage to deviate from tradition in such a small, isolated community. Dr. Schlesner left the island after the issue was solved, but Solve continued working on the island for the rest of her life. After hearing how Solve helped to literally save the life of the island, I was disappointed when Helga told me that most books, articles, and documentaries on the story focus on the doctor and don't explain how crucial Solve's work was in saving the lives of the babies. But, as Helga said... It's always the same. I want to take a quick aside here to tell you about Locatify. Locatify has generously sponsored this episode of Museums in Strange Places. 
Locatify is an Icelandic software company specializing in mobile apps that use location technologies for immersive audio guides, treasure hunt games, augmented reality, and indoor GPS for museums all over the world, including the Westman Islands. Sponsorship helps me pay for the equipment and software I need to make this podcast, so please swing by Locatify's website, locatify.com, to check out their award-winning products and thank them for supporting museums and strange places. You can't talk about the Westman Islands without mentioning Thjodhautid, their annual festival that takes place every year in August. About the festival that started in 1874, it used to be one day, now it's five. What's special with this festival, it started more or less as a family festival, but nowadays it's a more musical festival with young people. We get over for, this is the first weekend in August, and we got, get over 12 to 15,000 guests that weekend. <laughs> How important this festival is for us, you can see in, uh, even in the eruption, we had our festival here on the island. We are not able to keep it on a regular place for three years, but we then just moved it to the south coast of our island and had it there. On schedule? Yeah. Wow, so that uh, meant that the eruption stopped in July. July, so then you had the festival the next month. Yes, and because it was so very important for us to show ourselves that life would be going on on this island and everything would be normal as usual. <laughs> so we kept that on. Yes, it's a great festival with young, middle-aged and old people and everything mixes somehow. Yeah, and we have uh, all kinds of traditions. Uh, we uh, always uh, introduce a new song every year that everyone is learning. That's another thing that's very typical on this island. Uh, we love to sing. Uh, we have a lot of music here, a lot of singing. I'll make sure to post some videos of the festival on my website because it's clearly a wild time and there's nothing quite like it anywhere else. Here's a taste of the official festival song from 2017. Let's go to the Mormons. At the end of the 19th century, life in Iceland was particularly hard. The weather was extremely cold, and Danish colonial rule made things even worse. This led to large waves of Icelanders moving to North America, mostly to Canada. In the last three decades of the 1800s, 15,000 of Iceland's 75,000 inhabitants emigrated to North America. Before this, the Westman Islands faced their own mass emigration, as many left to join the Mormons in Utah. Between 1850 and 1900, about 400 Icelanders converted into Mormonism and went to Utah. 200 went from this island, Heimei. And at that time, we were just 500. Over a third of the island yeah. left from Mormonism. Yeah. No, not on the same year, but... Uh, yeah. And this, uh, this started in 1852. 
This is about 20 years earlier than the other people that went to USA. So we started this, and then they were going until 1904. We have been working on this exhibition uh, with the University of Utah, gathering all these photos we have here about the, uh, of the people that went. All those people had to be baptized before they left because um, they were given free land, the land of milk and honey in Utah. And on this wall, we're not only showing the Icelandic names, but also how the names changed when they came out to Utah. So did they I, just take uh, anglicized names, or how, how did the names change? Uh, well, if you have difficult names, like some of us have, you get rather uh, pissed if you have to always spell your names, so they just find it something that sounded similar. And some, some took very fancy names. It's very funny sometimes. We get a lot of people from Utah over here looking for their ancestors. And they come with the written names and bring it here to the exhibition. And I point the people out to them. And it's very common that people start crying. They get very emo emotional. I can very well understand that. I mean, yeah, this is you can come and see the land that your ancestor yes. lived on. I mean, that's a long way from from uh, not just Iceland, but from the Vestmanaer, yes. uh, all the way to Salt Lake City. You can see that most of them went through England and then over to USA. And it was a very long way. And of course, it waited for them a very different life over there. Not necessarily an easier life, but a very different life. And the people that helped us the most were the Indians. They taught us how to deal with this very different land, how to do fishing through the uh, wakes, what's called in the water. Ice. Yeah. Ice fishing. And they taught us how to deal with um, this very new situation. And those beautiful things here in this exhibition are things Indians made and gave to a family from this island when the woman gave birth to her children. So they're more than 100 years old. Wow, what a cool connection. So why, um, I guess people left because they believed in the Mormon faith, but um, why do you think Mormonism, what, how did Mormonism come to Iceland? Who brought it and why did it, why was it so popular? Well, uh, it all started with those two men with uh, photos there on the end. One was, uh, Thorin was from this island and Guðmundur was from the south coast of Iceland. And they went to Denmark to study in 1850. And there they learned about Mormonism and that they were giving away the land in Utah, the land of milk and honey. And when they came back to this island, it was a very difficult period here. It was freezing cold. It was no food, no work, nothing. So they started telling about this uh, opportunity to go to USA. And even if they got free land there, they had to pay for the fare over there. So we have left this about people selling some extra clothes, and I'm pretty sure people did not have many extra clothes at that time. But it was not so simple either, because, of course, they started to tell about Mormonism. And at that time, 1850, if you converted to Mormonism, it was more or less hopeless to stay on here in Ireland. We did not have the freedom to choose our religion until 1874, something like that. People got very isolated if they changed their faith. So it was, if you converted, you more or less had to go. We used to learn that people did not come back, but it's, it's also not as simple as it sounds, because if it was difficult to get over there, it was also difficult to get back. And also this um, 
people would say, okay, we knew you would never make it, we knew you would come back and things like that. So we now think it's about 10% that came back, but they did not necessarily come back to this island. They just came back to Iceland and had to start somewhere else new as well. Oh, how sad. Yes. But this is a very huge amount of people that left us. What a crazy life story those people must have to to have tried to start a new life in Salt Lake City in the mid-1800s, gone across the U.S., and then come all the way back across the ocean and had to resettle somewhere new in Iceland, which probably would have been very new to them as well. We have a a very nice story here about one family, family that got those nice Indian things. They left very late. They left about 1900, and they were a little north of Utah. They did not convert into Mormonism. They just left because most of their family had gone. After 1904, the husband got letters that everything was going so very well in on Westmanaya. We were getting new boats, stronger boats, and the fishing was great. And he wanted to take part in that. So they packed everything together and came back. So this uh, family came back and built a great big house here on the island. We are so grateful for this family because every one of them almost have some special skills and they all get very old and they all keep their memory to the end. There are always someone from this family that is coming to my museum to tell me things. I'm always calling them. <laughs> yeah. So we are very grateful that they came back, that they did not let this stop them, even if it was difficult. They say truth is stranger than fiction, and this is particularly true when it comes to the history of the Vesmanaer, where, in 1627, the island was attacked by pirates who had sailed all the way from North Africa to capture slaves. In uh, 1627, we were about 500 people living here on the island. We are always, more or less, about 500 people here until 1910. There came over three pirate ships from North Africa with about 300 pirates. And they took with them here from this island 242 people sold into slavery in North Africa, also killed a lot. They also uh, came to the east coast of Iceland and the small town on the south coast called Grindavik. So in total they took with them 400 Icelanders. Uh, A lot of um, countries in Europe have similar story about pirates, but we think our story is very special in that way that they took with them the priest on this island, Olavur Eilson, and the good priest was very old at that time. He was 63 years old, so he did not make any good slaves. So when they came to North Africa, they gave him a special passport and said to him, okay, you can go to your Danish king. We belong to Denmark at that time. You can go to your Danish king and try to get some ransom money for your people. So our good priest went up all Europe, up to Denmark, and met the Danish king. And the Danish king said, sorry, I'm having my usual fights with the Germans. I don't have any money. (laughs) So our good priest, he came back. He went back to Iceland. He came back in 1628. And he did what we Icelanders do the best. He sat down and wrote down the whole story. He describes how how it was on the island when the three ships were coming. 
how they gathered all the people together on the island and brought them to the harbor. Uh, also his wife and children, his pregnant wife, how they killed the other priest on the island, how it was on the pirate ship on the way to Algeria, where his wife gave birth to a little boy, and how it was in Algeria when they were brought through the streets and how the people were sell, sold on the slave market, also his 11-year-old son, and also describes his story uh, how his journey through Europe up to Denmark, everything he sees on the way. We have this story written. All the people have just been telling this sort of story in other um, countries. So, you know, if you are telling the story, the second time you tell the story, it's not exactly the same. <laughs> so we have this written story. And in this exhibition, we have paintings that uh, a young man from this island did about this story. It's not uh, a very nice exhibition, but life is not always very nice. It's a, and even, you know, even though the illustrations are, you know, uh, cartoons or, or drawings, it's still very, it's very intense what yeah. happened. And I believe some of them managed to make it back, though. Yes, uh, we got about uh, nine years uh, later, we got about 20 people back. Uh, of course, people have been speculating, why did the priest write down the story? Of course, we don't know, but one of the reasons might be that he was trying to convince people that he was able to show people he was able to come back. So perhaps others could also come back, and he was trying to let, uh, get, gather money together to buy out the people. After nine years, the Danish king also put something, some money into the pot to buy out people. But in uh, Algeria, there were not only people from Iceland belonging to Denmark, but also from the Faroe Island, Norway and Denmark. So we got about 20 people back. Among those people that came back uh, was the wife of the, our priest, Osta, but not her children. This must have been, I mean, to recover from that and stay on the island and rebuild the community must have been a huge undertaking. So, I mean, it's in the 1600s, life was already hard enough on the island, yeah. but to lose so much of the people, probably a lot of your able-bodied men. Yes. And that's also what's so very interesting with this island is whatever happens here, you see the pirate invasion, the Mormon immig immigrants, all the people we lost into sea, and the eruption in 1973, whatever happens, we always kept on being about 500 people here. We are now 4,200, used to be 5,200 before the eruption. The reason is that this island is so very well situated because of the fishing grounds around here island. Here has always been enough food most of the time, fish, birds, uh, usually enough work. So we have always been getting over new people from the south coast of Iceland. Even if we lose almost everyone from this island, we always get new people from the south coast. That's also why I don't have six fingers. We get mixed. <laughs> <laughs> Some new genetics every now and then. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> but this might be changing now because um, everything here has been depending on fishing and fish industry and the harbor. But now we have bigger boats. They don't need to come to this island every time. We pick up boats. They can. It's more like factories. So it might be changing. I don't know. Today, the island's population is in balance, but Helga doubts it will ever grow to over 5,000 again. 
Heimae has now become home to a number of Polish immigrants and their family, who have moved there to work in the fish processing industry. The future of fishing on the island is not guaranteed, and global warming is already affecting Iceland and the rest of the Arctic region. But I'm not too worried about these hardy Eyjamen. They've managed to adapt and rebuild for over a thousand years since the first settlers built a farm on the island in the early 900s. And I'm sure they will keep coming back to the island and finding new ways to improve their home for many years to come. Thanks for joining me on this adventure as I explore Iceland's many museums and get to know the fascinating people who run them. Today's episode was sponsored by Locatify. Music in this episode is a song Ode to Hemae by the 70s Greenlandic rock band Sumae. You can see photos of the Westman Islands and the Sovnheimer Museum on my website, hethman.com. That's H-H-E-T-H-M-O-N.com.